Thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege of studying this critical chapter, Lord. There's so much here for us to obey. I pray that we would be women who follow your word and obey you. In your name, amen. Well, I'm sure, hopefully, most of you got your income tax turned in on time on Monday. That was a bit painful. Uh, But I hear there's a new structure that they're going to try, which would make it a lot simpler. According to an artificial source, a new simplified uh, income tax form has only four lines to it. So you first, on the first line, you put what your income is for the year. And the second line, you put what your expenses were for the year. And the third line, you put how much you have left. And then on the fourth line, you send it in. That's it. <laughs> well, that's what it feels like anyway, sometimes. All right, well, let's get started. We have been studying this wonderful book of Romans, and the first 11 chapters have proven to us that God is righteous in all that he does. We have seen the incredible promises of God that uh, we're declared righteous by God, uh, justified, and are forgiven of our sins and have peace with him. And God's amazing mercy and kindness gives believers hope the assurance of his love, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, freedom from the bondage of sin, eternal life and freedom from under the law's condemnation. So we're no longer condemned. We're adopted into God's family. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit that we are his own. We have the Spirit himself interceding for us. And then that amazing promise that everything, that is everything, is working together for good to those that love him. We've also seen the blessing of God's election and his faithfulness to Israel and the fact that believers are all going to participate in the millennial kingdom. So in light of all of these incredible truths that we've been studying this year, uh, how should we respond to this spectacular mercy from God? Well, Paul's going to, from this point on, in the rest of the book, uh, teach us how to put our faith into practice with obedience. That is to be our response to everything we have just learned. We read in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, and therefore, is obviously therefore, based on chapters 1 through 11, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So based on the amazing mercy of God to call us to salvation, to provide that of our greatest need, uh, we are in response to lay down our very lives to the Lord. So Paul exhorts every believer to focus on giving their all to the Lord and not focus on whether and trying to get more from him. We have been taught doctrine after doctrine, truth after truth in these first 11 chapters. And now, God, now Paul instructs believers what is our responsibility. He's teaching us to be responsibly obedient. So what you believe will dictate how you behave. So your sense of duty to obey scripture has to be based on the truth of scripture. He urges us then to lay down our lives every day for him. 
An unbeliever can't do this. That's why Paul addresses this message to the brethren. He is writing to those who have experienced the incredible mercies of God in their life. We are to be a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So Paul is using here language from the Old Testament priesthood when they would bring an unblemished animal to God as an expression of worship. The New Testament teaches that all true believers are part of a royal priesthood and that we are to offer up ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Instead of an animal, we ourselves are to be the living sacrifice to him. Our worship to the Lord is, to, is giving of our lives, not a percentage of our day, not a percentage of our energy or our money or our resources. We are to continually offer up all of ourselves to him. So whether you are caring for ungrateful children, working with challenging people at a job, whatever the case may be, you are to fulfill his desires because your body belongs to him. If we have self-focus, then we go down that very unpleasant road that will lead us to make a lot of wrong choices. One can always find a church or a book or a Bible teacher that will validate whatever it is you want to do. But as believers, we are called to live a life of dying to our sinful flesh, a life that is daily, moment by moment, surrendered to his will and control. So the real question each of us has to consider is whether we've given our very lives and bodies to him to use as he would choose. It is the only logical and reasonable response of worship in light of the mercies he has freely given to us who deserve nothing but hell itself. So verse 1 speaks of this presentation of your body, and it's a once-for-all giving of your life to Christ. I think a good picture of the idea here is marriage. You only have one wedding day where you present yourself to your spouse and make those promises, but then the rest of the time is living out life in its mundane way, fulfilling and keeping those promises. So we present our bodies to Christ the day of our salvation, and then daily we really renew doing that by our actions. Paul exhorts us here to make sure you have presented your body to Christ for him, for his use and purposes. And as we continue through this book, there will be so many commands, which it is our duty, our reasonable response to obey. Only genuine believers surrendered to God's will can see the importance of being obedient to his commands. So how do we resist when the world is pressuring us and screaming at us with its values? What do we do when our own flesh wants to dictate what we do? And how do we fight the enemy of our soul who wants to deceive our minds so that we think and act in an ungodly way? And that's where verse 2 comes in. We are told here to not be conformed to this world and its way of thinking. And the thought is here, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't act like the world when you are not a part of the world and its system. And as you know, the world here refers to the spirit of the age that we're living in. So we are commanded to not be conformed to the world. And our world, let's face it, is a totally self-centered world, self-advancement, selfish living. People think, and Christians sadly do too, thinking that jobs, people, and churches all exist to meet, you know, your need. We live in a culture of hate and vengeance. We live in a culture that despises everything holy that God stands for. And thus we have come to this place in our culture, in our country, where the family is despised. And God's standard of what is right and wrong about men, women, children, and family is no longer 
a biblical perspective. And all of that teaching comes through the school systems, through the entertainment industry. I mean, what movie or program can you watch where there's not infidelity with a couple married, a couple not married, or two men and two women? It's everywhere, every time. It comes through in the music. All of this trying to deceive us into deceptive error. We must not think like our world. So how do we stop that influence? By transforming or renewing our minds. And the way we renew our minds is by filling it with God's word. We are to live our lives no longer conformed to this world, which has the idea of an outward expression that doesn't reflect the inside of us, but rather we're to have, um, we're to have an, inward, an outward expression that actually reflects what really has happened on the inside of us. This is where we get the word metamorphosis from, a change from within us. The only way we can have a renewed mind is to allow the truths of scriptures to <laughs> dominate how we think and then respond with obedience to God's word. So that involves discipline of study, which I'm proud of all of you for hanging in there and being here. It's a long year. <laughs> Starts in early September and we keep going and you're to be commended that you've made the effort to be in God's word in the study. But we also need to be memorizing scripture and not just doing that because I can check that off my list, but that, so that we can think about scripture. So practically speaking, it means that when we are tempted to worry, and we all are, so are we going to let our minds go 90 miles an hour down the black hole of whatever we've come up with? Or will we choose instead to reflect on the power of God, on the goodness of God, on the sovereignty of God? He's established his throne in, his heaven, in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Are we going to think about verses about casting your cares on him? And tomorrow's enough, today has enough trouble. Don't borrow tomorrow's. So we need to think about truths when we struggle with a particular sin. And then how about with anger? It's easy to get angry when we're hurt by other people and our feelings are hurt or people are unkind or accusatory. So we turn to the end of this chapter we're studying and we look at God's word. How are we supposed to respond? And let that be what dictates how you're going to respond. This is why it's so critical to be in his word and studying it daily because that's the only way you can renew your mind. I mean, and when there's that free time, you're vacuuming, you're doing the dishes, you're making a meal, whatever it is. You know, that's an opportunity to have music that edifies, to have another message on. With the way we have technology today, it's at our fingertips. So we have no excuse. When the world's thinking starts to infiltrate our minds, we have to compare it to God's word and then change our response and the way we're thinking so that it lines up with scripture instead. And once we presented our bodies and our minds to God, then people, now Paul's going to go on to tell us now how we should behave with other people. And he, so he begins with this section of 3 through 8 where he brings in spiritual gifts. This is not the exhaustive list in the New Testament, but a few gifts are mentioned. But I love what he first states in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's our number one problem right there. We think more highly of ourselves. But to think as if have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are the many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, 
if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving and teaching, uh, and he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul begins this section on serving one another with the, in the body of Christ with our spiritual gifts by first just giving us a great reminder about humility. Consecrated service to Jesus demands, requires humility. An honest and accurate and proper appraisal of ourselves. Paul begins by saying, through the grace given to, uh, given to me, and he appeals to them as one who has been a recipient of grace himself. He was an apostle based on God's grace and mercy, not because he was great or better than anyone else. And every believer has been given a gift by God, a supernatural ability to serve Christ with their spiritual gift. So if we faithfully do what he's enabled us to do, there is no room for pride or boasting or thinking better about yourself because he's the source of your ability to do what you're doing in the first place. We're not to think in such a way, we rather are to think, think with sound judgment. We're to be sober-minded and level-headed and have an accurate, reasonable view of who we are. I mean, when we love how people think of us, would they think like that us, of us if they saw us in our home? I love what um, one Bible teacher said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it loosely because I'm trying to remember what it was, Vicki. <laughs> uh, one preacher said, if, if you could read my mind before a message, you probably wouldn't want to listen to my preaching. He said, but if I could read yours, I probably wouldn't even want to bother. So, <laughs> got to have an accurate, sensible view of ourselves. We know from the church at Corinth that the members there, they just wanted to, they coveted the gifts that were more in the spotlight. And God calls us to use our spiritual gifts because they are sovereignly given out to each individual by the Holy Spirit. We are to be content then with the gifts he's given us and with our function and our part in the body of Christ. Paul is saying to us not to have an attitude where you think of yourself as something you really aren't. Do not aspire to be something God has gifted you to be. There's no room for spiritual pride in the life of any believer. Paul says, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. He's not speaking about saving faith, obviously. God hasn't given different measurements of saving faith to believers. Rather, it's the spiritual capacities you need to use uh, for your gifts, using your gifts for his glory. So when you have a spiritual gift, that happens at the moment of your salvation. Obviously, you didn't know that that happened, that the Holy Spirit gave you a gift, two or three, or whatever combination at the moment of salvation. And then God gives you the capacity to grow and use that gift. So he alone gets the glory because it is all of his doing. How can we boast about something, a gift that was given to us? So there is no room for pride when you realize that God has given you the gift and the actual capacity of serving him with that gift. So the emphasis is not to be consumed with identifying all your gifts, taking a test to figure that all out, but rather faithfully use the very unique combinations of abilities that he's given you and just get busy and do something for him. Serve where you have a desire to serve. And I might add, you might serve where you don't have a desire to serve because you don't know if your desire will change once you start doing that ministry. Gifts all blend together and they're unique because they blend into each individual's unique personality so that we please him as we trust and obey. The most important issue is commitment. 
then check your desires, and then just start serving somewhere. Ask people you serve with as they observe you in the service if this seems to be something you're equipped to do. And if they say, no, I don't think so, then look for something else to do. <laughs> you have to ask in a certain way. <laughs> be honest with me. Um, the goal should not be, I have to have my gift labeled. Uh, as I said, they're not always easy to label because they blend together uh, different gifts of, um, your, with your personality and even talents that God combines with your spiritual gifts. So serve him in a capacity with a humble heart. The whole purpose for spiritual gifts is so that we serve Christ and minister to his body. And the church is his body. It's the spiritual body of Christ on earth, and we're to be unified as Christ as our head. So just like the human body has all different parts that all are supposed to function and do their thing, so the spiritual body of Christ has great diversity that all works together to be unified. So we're to be content with our function in the body of Christ. We all know if you have a stub toe, an, a, a torn uh, fingernail, or uh, an eye with a sty, or a foot injury, your whole body knows it and suffers, right? If you are not actively serving in your local church, then you are the one making it difficult for the body to actually be functioning properly because there is a place that you are to be serving. And maybe someone else who doesn't have that gift that you have is doing it because there's no one else. So I encourage you, don't just sit around and try to become uh, concerned only about figuring out what your spiritual gift is. Just get busy and serving where there is a need. And as time goes on, it will be very clear what it is as you are and how you are equipped to serve. So he lists some verses in 6 through 8. And these are just a few. You saw other passages with more extended lists. But the point of Paul here is not to make every gift listed, but rather to tell us to use them in a faithful way, whatever it is. If it's prophecy, that concerns speaking in public to openly proclaim the word of God before others. Often it is thought of only in terms of telling events of the future, but it includes more than that. When God was revealing new revelation before scripture was complete, Prophecy did include new revelation, sometimes the future, or just speaking forth what God has said. Today, God's word is complete. The canon of scripture is complete. There is no more new revelation. And I don't know, we live in an era, again, in evangelical Christianity, where we have many teachers claiming they have new messages from God, and God is speaking to them in a new. Ladies, the canon of scripture is closed. You don't add, you don't take away. There is not new revelation happening. Whether the truth then is proclaimed in a Sunday school class, in a Bible study, or sharing the gospel message with someone, or proclaiming God's truth, it is to be done according to the measured out amount of faith. So be sure that what you teach agrees with what God's word reveals. And in the gift of service, we see here also it is the gift of helps. It has the idea of support, taking a burden off of someone and placing it on yourself. This gift comes right after proclaiming truth. And honestly, without the gifts of serving and helping, there would be no church functioning properly. Whether it's meals for someone ill or in a crisis, whether it's secretarial work, mowing someone's lawn, changing a diaper in the nursery, these are all gifts of service that are absolute essential and critical to the body of Christ. Then exhortation is the gift of encouraging and comforting and admonishing. 
This gift encourages people when they're hurting or advises them or strengthens them in their faith. It's a God-given ability to counsel people accurately with the word and persuade them to take courage, assuring them to take comfort from the word in the midst of difficulty. And as I said before, these gifts are a blend of personalities and other gifts. So somebody's gift of exhortation can come out in a counseling ministry, can come out through the ministry of music. I mean, so many different ways that God uses individuals and their personality and the gifts he's given them. The gift of giving is a special gift to give over and above the norm. I mean, we're all supposed to be giving. We're all commanded to give of our finances for the ministry in the local church. But some have a special gift and are always looking out for the needs of others so that they can meet that need. The motive is to be always for the glory of God. And then the gift of leadership is probably the same as administration mentioned elsewhere. It means to rule or manage, to stand before, to have charge of. So with this gift of leading, it helps steer the body of Christ with wisdom. It is a God-given ability to keep the church on course. And showing mercy is that ability to effectively have compassion for those who are suffering. Every believer is to show mercy. Every believer is to have compassion. But for some, this is their ministry where they thrive. They derive their deepest satisfaction and fulfillment in life through this ministry. They desire to do something to try and relieve the pain of those who are suffering. None of these gifts have anything to do with someone trying to earn favor for God for salvation. We've seen salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. And then God enables us after salvation to serve his body with these gifts. And that brings us to genuine love being on display really through the rest of this chapter. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Well, if there wasn't anything else in the Bible, (laughs) this would be a lifetime of working on obeying all of this. So true love is devoted love for one another. And the love spoken of here is is tender and affectionate. It has a tenderness and warmth for other believers. So we're to love each other as brothers and sisters in the same family. Maybe that's difficult for some of you because you didn't grow up in a home where there was much affection or closeness in your family. But the normal design for a family is that there is a special closeness, love, and concern for one another. And family love means involvement with other family members, looking out for each other, caring about them. And the church is our family in the spiritual realm. So our love is to be, he says, without hypocrisy. So we're not to pretend that we actually care about people, do things that look like we care about people when we really could care less about people. Uh, Not to pretend. Rather, we're to demonstrate love to other believers. And we're told as well to abhor what is evil. Evil is the enemy of God as well as the enemy of love. And the fear of the Lord is to hate evil because God hates evil. True love clings to what is good. And when you love someone, you want what's best for them. You have the courage to warn them as a family member of the dangers if they're off course. Love seeks the good of others. If we have the mind of Christ, we will love what he loves and we will hate what he hates. And how often do we find ourselves being entertained by the very things that God hates? Well, true love also honors others. 
Being devoted speaks of uh, being tender and affectionate and our love for others. And then this word preference carries a sense of leading the way. Uh, we aren't to be waiting till someone else honors or acknowledges us and what we did to help. We are to lead in honoring others. We're to try now do each other and showing honor for someone else, taking up upon ourselves the role of a servant to meet the needs of others before our needs are met. And that's Philippians 2 as well. And genuine love also serves the Lord in verse 11. True love doesn't do things so others will applaud. Uh, rather, it's out of service for the Lord. This is my rational, reasonable service of worship. We're told in this verse not to grow lazy in the work of the Lord. We are to have a zeal and to be quick to want to meet the needs of others. When there is a need, true love doesn't back away. Rather, there's a sense of urgency to try to meet the need. The Bible has a lot to say about condemning being lazy. And ladies, this is where it really takes wisdom and management of our time. Some people work very hard all day at a job, and they're exhausted. And then they work in their homes with things that have to be done. They work extensively in their yards with things that need to be done. And then they have nothing left to give to anybody. So obviously, it requires to manage our time in a way that we have opportunity to do a ministry. And obviously, in different seasons of life, it's going to look totally different. You got three kids, five kids, six kids. They're all home. You're nursing a baby. Things don't look the same when you're 55. (laughs) It's a lot easier, by the way. But at any rate, uh, we have to also recognize at this point, maybe my focus is going to be prayer and giving a texture of encouragement. Whatever it is, you can find a way to zealously serve the Lord by serving others. And true love is confident in the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. These are huge things to just think about. How can we even obey it when we don't even remember it? In the midst of our own trials and pain, it is so easy to forget about other people and their own needs. But the command here is that we are to rejoice in hope because we have a hope of our future in heaven. So no matter how dark things are or become here, it won't always be this way. To persevere in tribulation means to endure, to remain under the load, and to be patient. Tribulation means pressure. So the thought here is to endure under pressure. God's love doesn't react by yelling in anger after a trying day or a day where you're physically ill or physically in pain. I mean, that's our normal human response. I'm not nice when I'm ill, and my husband can attest to that. But illness or pain is not an excuse. True love is confident and understands that the stress and the pain and the illness that God allows into our life is all a part of him molding us to be more like himself. And as we are devoted to prayer, it means we don't keep problems to ourselves. We lay them before the Lord. When our confidence is in the Lord, then we are free to demonstrate love for others because we are not consumed with just ourselves. True love also meets the needs of God's people where he says contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. So contributing obviously means to share, um, to have fellowship. We are to see other believers as partners And if our partner has a material need that we can meet, then we should help. God has made us stewards of material goods. And ladies, nothing really belongs to us. Even if you've worked hard your whole life, it's only because God gave you the ability to work hard and gave you the job so you could earn the money. 
and so on and so on. It all belongs to the Lord. So we are partners then with other believers in meeting needs. Our money is not our own. Actually, God has entrusted it to us. And we are to share with others and be sensitive to their needs. And we're also to practice being hospitable. Actually, we're to pursue being hospitable. This means we look for people who might need a place to stay. We invite new people who don't know people into our home. And this is not talking about having all your family and close friends over. That's not hospitality. This is a love of strangers reaching out to people you don't know as well. And true love speaks well of those who persecute us. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse and do not curse. Well, we know those who seek to live God-honoring lives are going to suffer persecution. After all, we live in this world system uh, at this time, and Jesus, what the calling that he's given us to obey his word is contrary to everything in our world. Jesus made it clear in John 15, the world hated him and they will hate you as well. So we're to speak well of those who persecute us. In our flesh, you know, we want to strike back. But love does not do this. True love prays for those who persecute us. And this is what Jesus did and what he taught us to do by example. If you are someone preoccupied with your rights, how dare anybody talk to me that way? How dare anybody, whatever, then you're not going to obey this verse. True love empathizes with the feelings of others. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So those who truly love others feel their pain and are not selfishly indifferent to the feelings of those around them. So do you rejoice when someone you know gets a promotion with much greater pay? Or do you resent that now they're going to have way more than you? When God provides for someone else in a special way, are you happy for them? Or are you annoyed that God didn't do that for you? We're also to weep with those who weep. Loving people means we shed tears when they are hurting. True love is involved in the joys and in the sorrows of one another in the body of Christ. God genuinely cares, therefore he expects his children to genuinely care for each other. And don't be haughty, associate with the lowly, and do not be wise in your own estimation. That kind of brings us back to verse 3, you know, to have an honest view of yourself uh, with humility. So it means we don't think of ourselves as superior to anybody else. You know the temptation when you see someone unkept, unclean, perhaps begging uh, at the stoplight. We must never think that we're better than them. We are to treat all people with the same love. Just study the ministry of Jesus. He had compassion for everyone in his culture that the rest of the culture despised. We are not to try... Uh, try and be connected to people only because they have money or they're educated or they have a high social status. Nor should we think of ourselves to be so wise that we can't associate with people with less education, less money, or in a more difficult circumstance. We need to remember, ladies, we are nothing but wretched, sinful women saved by the grace of God. And how do we respond to our enemies as he closes out this chapter? We are commanded to never pay back evil to to someone who has done evil to us. Rather, we're to bless those who persecute us. Obviously, this is not a natural response in your own flesh. And that's, that's where we have to stop and go, whoa, okay, I just renewed laying down my life today as a living sacrifice, so I'm going to submit to God's will. We're to respect what is right in the sight of all men 
And as we forgive and we're gracious towards enemies, we honor the Lord and testify that he's doing something in us because that's just not natural. And so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. To be at peace with someone really is two-sided. Our responsibility, though, is to make sure that our side of the relationship is right, that our heart's desire is to be honestly at peace with all people, even cruel people, even obnoxious and unkind, hurtful people. We are to do our part to build peaceful bridges to those who have hurt us. We must forsake our own bitterness if it's grown and fully forgive from our heart. Uh, We seek reconciliation with a heart attitude that honors the Lord. That's the best we can do to be at peace. There's some people who there's nothing, they don't want to be at peace with you no matter what you do. So you and I have to make the steps to be at, at possible at peace with them. And never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Here's a clear command that we are to never take our own revenge, but let God deal with it. So no matter what unkindness has been done, we are not the ones qualified to give out the punishment for the offense against us. We are told to leave that to God. The wrath of God will come when he justly deals with people in his own way, in his own time, because he alone knows the actual heart's and what's going on inside of people. So he is the only qualified judge to deal with them properly and correctly. Now you would think if you had self-control and you did not respond and taking your own revenge, that that's, you're good. But we're told in these closing verses that we're actually to just not stop there, but to actually then do something kind to the one who's done evil to us. As Paul quotes from Proverbs, he's telling us that even... Uh, that when we love our enemies, we try to meet their needs. This is the right thing to do, even if they misconstrue your kindness to mean something else. The danger is that it's too easy to let others' evil behavior overcome us, so then in reality, we're acting the same way that they were to us. To us. But a believer who has laid down their life as a living sacrifice, who has given their body to Christ, will die to self, and obey this command and not retaliate and not hold a grudge and not live with resentment and bitterness. We have to guard our hearts, ladies, to respond properly when we're misunderstood and when we're mistreated. If we allow the root of bitterness in our minds, as Ephesians 4 says, uh, you're, it's, you're opening your mind to the Satan. That's his playground to try to take us down very dark paths of justification for our own sin. And when we refuse to forgive, as I said, we play right into Satan's hand. And suddenly, when that happens, and we've all been there, we've all done that, we know that we have no joy. And suddenly, we have no joy. We're not out of fellowship with the Lord. God doesn't hear our prayers, because if we have sin in our heart, he doesn't regard us. And life is just plain miserable. God has given us his word, ladies, to obey, and it's for our own well-being that we obey his word, that we are to obey him. We were never equipped. Our bodies are not equipped to bear up under living with the sin and strain of resentment and bitterness or hating or unforgiveness. This sin destroys us. It does so much damage to our spiritual life, more than the original evil done by our enemy. So when you refuse to forgive, you start this lifetime of building your own self-made prison with your own hands. And then all of life's events and circumstances are viewed from the prism and the perspective of the prison you've built. 
So when other people come in, you have that same lens towards them. So I plead with you, stop justifying your sin if you've fallen into this trap of unforgiveness or resentment towards others, whether it is a spouse, an in-law, a former friend, a child, a coworker. You have to renew your mind and line it up with Scripture and its clear commands given to us by God. There must be a point of true repentance for your own sins and a surrender to his authority over your life. God could have prevented the situation and the unkindness from ever happening, but he has allowed it for his purposes. He commands us to feed our enemy if they're hungry, to give them a drink if they're thirsty. So a really practical way of not letting evil overcome you because of somebody doing something wrong to you is to then do an act of kindness for that person. And I tell you, it is a very freeing thing to do. And it's something only you and the Lord know what you're doing. Let God judge your enemies or family or friends who have hurt and disappointed you. You choose to obey his commands and lay down your life again and again as your sacrifice of worship to the Lord. Obey his commands. Wow, like I said, if this was the only chapter in the Bible, we have our work cut out for us. This is your reasonable spiritual service of worship, ladies. So let's get busy and do the work he's given us to do. Father, I thank you for all these truths in your word. Lord, even if we take one and focus on that this week, Lord, help us to implement and obey the commands here in your word. Help us to daily, consciously, when we wake up in the morning, think to the you, I'm going to lay down my life to you afresh, Lord. I'm before your throne. I'm my bo- this is my body. Do with me what you want today, Lord. Help us to do and live like that every day of our life. We thank you for your word, and I pray that we would have wisdom implementing it. In your name, amen. Thank you, ladies.